are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we are picking up with uh, our discussion on the distinctive uh, qualities of the humble man, the distinctive characteristics. And we are on page 391, if you're following along in the text, with paragraph 31. Paragraph 31. A brother asked Abba Alonius, what does it mean to debase oneself? The elder answered, it means to believe that you are lower even than, than the dumb beast and to recognize that they, unlike you, are not accountable for what they do. So we often show ourselves to be less intelligent than the wild beast, uh, we are told here, and yet we are far more accountable. And uh, in the past, I've told that little story about uh, Ignatius of Loyola, which I think is a great example of this, when he first converted to Christianity, that, you know, he had sort of that uh, machismo, and there was a kind of fierceness uh, within him of the soldier, and uh, he happened upon uh, uh, a non-believer on the road, and he had a discussion with him about the faith and the person insulted the blessed virgin mary and so they continued on their way and they were drawing close to a town and uh the stranger rode into the town to stop there and so uh, ignatius said to himself well if the ass stays on the road uh, I won't kill him, but if he turns into the town, then I'll, I'll kill this individual who insulted the Blessed Virgin. And so luckily the ass had more intelligence than Ignatius at that point and just carried along along the road. Otherwise he would have committed murder. And uh, I always thought, well, that, that's the perfect example of what's being spoken about here, that often we are driven uh, by our, our baser appetites or by our emotions without much thought and certainly without much prayer. And so we can make ourselves quite literally lower than the beast. And certainly we are more accountable than, than they are, uh, given that we have will and intellect uh, as well as our conscience to guide us. And yet, despite these things, we often dull them, dull our sensibilities and that prevent us from seeing clearly, or even when we do see clearly, uh, we often will choose the, the darker path. And so this passage that we're reading this evening is going to be filled with sayings like this one about self-reproach as being important in the spiritual life. And there can be something that's a little disconcerting about it, uh, because I think we often will equate it with self-esteem and what psychology tells us. And so there can be a hesitancy on our part uh, to embrace it perhaps as fully as the fathers do here. And yet they have this clear sense uh, that as their heart became more and more pure, just how easily we turn away uh, from God, the multitude of times throughout the course of the day that we uh, direct our affection and our love to the things of this world, that we fall into a kind of idolatry or adultery, uh, if we think of it in relational terms. And uh, 
there's one monk who will be asked, you know, about an, who was speaking to himself as being worse than a, an individual who commits murder. And uh, when questioned about it, he said, well, this individual committed one murder. I could I commit multiple murders a day. And uh, so he had a kind of clarity there about how within our minds and within our hearts, we can strike others down with our thoughts. And it's very much like our Lord saying, you know, he who has looked at a woman with lustful thoughts uh, in his heart has already committed adultery. That uh, it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks as well as uh, out of the heart that we act. And so having murderous thoughts towards others is a, can be a profound breakdown of charity, even if one does not act upon it. And, uh, and so this is the sense, I think, that we want to reflect upon this, a kind of clarity that we have about the poverty of sin. And again, the need for God's grace and mercy in our life. Number 32, Abba Poyman said that when a man reproaches himself, he will have endurance and patience in every circumstance. So when we develop this clear sense of our own poverty, of our own weakness, our capacity for sin, uh, then we become patient in every situation, that we can see ourselves in the other and know that it's only by the grace of God that we are not doing the same thing so often. And uh, again, that there is this kind of solidarity that exists between us, that we share in that same human condition. And we are capable, no matter how deeply we've entered into the spiritual life, of the greatest evil outside of the grace of God. And so there's no room for pride. And so a person who has reproached himself on a daily basis then develops this ability to endure whatever might come to him or the insults that he might receive from another. Number 33, the same elder said that when a man succeeds in grasping the saying of the apostle, unto the pure, all things are pure, he sees himself as being lower than all of God's creatures. A brother who heard this said to him, how can I reckon myself lower than a murderer? The elder replied, if a man attains to the measure of this saying, such that he acquires purity, he sees a man engaging in murder, he will say he has committed only this one sin, but I commit murder daily. So it's interesting how the Corman connects it here to purity of heart. And as we've talked about before, one of the fruits of purity of heart is discernment, our capacity uh, to see things clearly, uh, not only about the circumstances that surround us, but about the, tru the truth about ourselves, our own sin. And this is an extraordinary gift, although it's not seen so often as being extraordinary, or perhaps even the primary aim that we should have in the spiritual life. But from John Cassian on, we hear this constant refrain that the immediate goal of the spiritual life is purity of heart uh, so that we can see our own sin and so then repent to turn to God for, for his healing. In fact, Isaac the Syrian will say that to have that gift, that ability to see one's own sin is greater than the capacity to raise a person from the dead. And so it gives us a sense of where our minds and our hearts should be focused in the spiritual life, what we should be seeking on a day-to-day -day basis is to uh, understand and see about what's going on within our own hearts. The active life, we have to remember for the fathers, uh, was not about external actions and, and behaviors, uh, but rather it was the ascetic life of engaging in this process of seeking this purity of heart, of humbling ourselves before God and others and seeking the healing of his grace. It's in this, in this purity of heart, that our capacity to love God 
and to love others grows and becomes what it's meant to be. Number 34, the same brother put the same question also to Abba Anub, telling him the opinion of Abba Poiman. On hearing him, Abba Anub replied, what he told you was right. This is how it is. For if a man attains to the measure of the saying, such that he acquires purity and sees the sins of his brother, he succeeds by the power of his virtue in swallowing them up, that is, in overlooking them. And what is this virtue? asked the brother a second time. Self-reproach, answered Abba Anu. For he who reproaches himself justifies his neighbor, and this righteousness conceals his neighbor's sins. It's a beautiful saying, and it's also amazing how often it comes up uh, across the writings of the fathers uh, that our, our love and our purity should be such that it not only prevents us from judging our, our neighbor, but also creates a desire within our hearts to cover up their weakness and their vulnerability from the eyes of the world that we should not take a morbid delight uh, or direct this power of seeing one's own sin towards another. And if we do see that sin, then love, charity would demand that we would want to protect them, to help lift them out of it, to pray for them, but also to conceal it so that they aren't humiliated in the eyes of the world. And often in the course of our groups, we've talked about a kind of morbid delight that emerges uh, in the world uh, and in our conversations over the, the falls of others. And or when something is exposed about them in a very public fashion and the media, then even the news outlets, uh, which typically in the past uh, did not focus upon these things in such great measure. Uh, but now all of these things are sensationalized, that this is what has become news and is repeated over and over again. Uh, and instantaneously, too, often the uh, individuals on social media beat the, the news networks to it. And in the sense of exposing others in their weaknesses, flaws, and in their sins. And uh, whereas as a Christian, part of protecting the preciousness of this virtue for ourselves, as well as protecting the true humility, is not to direct this uh, ability to see towards others in a harsh way. And uh, the fathers talked again about what was called the insensitive faculty of the soul, that which allows us to respond immediately when we see temptation arise in our life. We become incensed at his presence. It allows us to act quickly and to, to cut out the sin as soon as we see it arise, say, within our thoughts. When we have a, an angry or hateful thought towards another, that we immediately move to prayer and that insensitive faculty acts in, acts, it kicks in in order to, to drive it out. Uh, but often uh, in our, our weakness, we will direct it towards others, often to great harm. And this is one of those things that, you know, we often will rationalize, you know, uh, righteous anger, that there's a kind of justice that we tell ourselves is involved here. And we have to be ever so cautious about it, you know, whether or not it's really our role to point out the, the sins and the weaknesses of others. Any comments or questions so far? Okay. Number 35. It was said of Abba Poiman that he was never willing to maintain his own opinion against that of another elder or even to give the appearance of doing so. Thus he would praise him regardless of the situation. Indeed, those who knew him related the following. If he was visited by some believers, he would first send them to Abba Anub, since the latter was his senior in years. 
For his part, Abba Anub would tell them, go to my brother Poiman, because he has the gift of teaching. If at any time it happened that Abba Anub and Abba Poiman were sitting together, Abba Poiman did not speak at all, since Abba Anub was present. So if we are to compete <laughs> uh, for anything, it is to compete in virtue and in self-effacement that we would seek to elevate the other. And so their love and respect for each other prevented them from exalting themselves. And when anyone tried to uh, elevate them, even if what they were saying was true, they didn't take hold of that opinion, but rather would seek to deflect it. And we can often be the opposite. We can crave the approval of others and, uh, and seek it out and long for it. And when it's not given to us, we can feel disheartened when we aren't recognized for our labors. And here we are given, again, a quite, quite a different example of life, that our desire should be to elevate the other, not ourselves. And, you know, this, uh, you know, certainly requires some asceticism on our part, you know, that we would exercise our faith, that we would exercise this ability to discern, again, our own poverty, and so not reach so quickly uh, for what would feed our self-esteem, that we would seek to fast in regards, in regard to feeding that desire. Number 36, Abba Poiman used to tell how he heard the blessed Abba Anthony say, the greatest deed that a man can do is to assume responsibility for his sin before God and expect temptation until his last breath. So very clear, but also very challenging to assume responsibility for all of our sins, not to seek to cover them up, rather seek to expose them to the light, uh, to repent in order that they might be healed, and then also to expect temptation until our last breath. That again, uh, no matter how much we have seemingly progressed within the spiritual life or how certain temptations have eased in our spiritual life uh, because we aren't giving them as much attention, uh, we can never believe that we're going to be free from attack. It might change its form over the course of time, uh, but nonetheless, until we are in the grave, and maybe until five minutes after we're in the grave, we would uh, not give over to the, the thought that we're free from temptation. A couple comments here. Hold on for one second. Father Marty writes, 34 reminded me of a statement that often strikes me. It was said of Abba Marcarius the Great that he became, according to the writings, a God on earth because in the way God protects the world, so Abba Macarius would hide the faults he saw as though he had not seen them, and the faults he heard about as though he had not heard of them. Absolutely, isn't that beautiful that, uh, that he had not pretend or even to have formed the heart so much that one had not seen them, and, and also not to give on that one has heard anything. And again, you know, with all the access to information that we have, there is this powerful temptation when something is heard to share it. And uh, we often don't talk about sins of speech so much anymore, but tale bearing or storytelling is one of those sins of speech where we will carry something that we've heard about another and it doesn't even have to be something that's necessarily sinful, but might be uh, satisfying to another person's curiosity to make this known about the other, that somehow one has special knowledge about this individual. And so the first thing they do when they hear or see it is run to another and tell them about it. Did you hear so-and-so is going to do this? and uh or has done this and and so 
I think it's good that we would get back to this. You know, certainly as uh, Father Marty describes here uh, in regards to protecting the other in charity and not giving into uh, things, even if we've seen or heard them. But I think in general, uh, to try try to move away from this practice of tale bearing or storytelling. That's a hard one. Because we, we love information, curiosity. Whenever that comes up in the fathers too, as being problematic, as being sinful, people go nuts over it because curiosity in their mind often will mean uh, a sort of uh, desire to learn. You know, that it's uh, one of those aspects of the intellect, you know, of our trying to, you know, develop a deeper understanding of something. And of course, on a certain level, that can be true, but it can also be curiosity in a sinful kind of way. But uh, and as I've described, or it can be something that's dissipating, that we can move from one area or one subject to another simply to gratify a thirst for knowledge, to fill the mind with certain things. And again, when we have, we're on the information highway uh, constantly, and we can, with a single click of the mouse, go to another website that is, and they're so good about this now, like articles that are related to something that we are interested in, or if we had been searching an article about something, the next thing you know, it shows up as an ad on Facebook or somewhere else, uh, encouraging you, you know, to, to click on it. And, uh, but when we do that, we can become dissipated. We can lose our attention on what we need to be focused on, work, others, or most especially God. And so even with things like curiosity, whether it's about the other or the things of this world, we have to be very careful. Number 35, I'm sorry, number 36. No, sorry, number 37. <laughs> sorry, what a senior moment there. Number 37, on another occasion, Abba Poyman said groaning, all of the virtues have entered this house except one. Without it, a man suffers torment and vexation. Which is this, he was asked. He replied that a man should reproach himself. So it's interesting. He lets out a groan. Uh, and we hear a similar story you know, of, of Anthony looking out at the world and seeing all the, you know, the evil ones, the demons, you know, God, what can save us from this? And the word that he hears is humility. And similarly here, uh, we have Poyman, you know, groaning and, and, you know, crying out, you know, in this kind of torment with this understanding that there's really only one thing that can, can save us from it, this kind of suffering that we experience in this world, and it's self-reproach. Our willingness, again, to acknowledge our sin, not to hide or try to hide ourselves from God and the ways that we've turned away from him. In another instance, the same elder said, if a man keeps his role, he suffers no disturbance. This is precisely why we fall into many temptations, because we do not attend to our role and our affairs. We learn from the Old Testament regarding Abigail that she said to David, the sin is mine, and that David listened to her and fell in love with her. Abigail symbolizes our soul and David, the Godhead. If the soul re reproaches itself before God, then the Lord loves it. So interesting. We Again, we see how deeply immersed the fathers were in the scriptures and how uh, this kind of purity of heart, but also depth of prayer brought out the meaning uh, of the text for her. You know, that David marries Abigail. And, uh, and this example, though, of her taking the fault for something 
attracts David's gaze all the more, you know, that he sees her virtue, her goodness. And similarly, the soul's willingness to humble itself, to reproach itself, immediately draws the attention of God. Marine writes, the tree in the garden, once they ate, they knew and then hid from God. Right, the one thing that we want to do the opposite of, the, the path back to virtue is to return by the path that we came to, to vice. So if pride brings us there, and then this hiding for, from God that comes about by the breaking of that communion, the, th the restoring of it is humility, truthful living, allowing ourselves to be seen in the fullness of that light and seeking healing and to turn away from all the things that where we would seek to elevate our own judgment above that uh, of God. There's a funny little story I was reading about today uh, where uh, that when we say we're going to do something, we should always say, if God wills it. And uh, uh, wife's, you know, a husband said to his wife, well, I'm going out to the fields to work. And she says, well, we should say, if God wills it. And he says, well, whether God wills it or not, I'm going out to the field. And so he goes out to the field and there is a huge storm. Uh, that comes up that he can barely make his way back to the house and uh, he pounds on the door and his wife answers who is it and he said it's your husband if god wills it <laughs> so he he learned uh to listen to to his wife uh and the truth of what she spoke if god wills it you know, that we we would not, again, elevate ourselves, our judgment, or our plans above that of God. Number 39. Abba Poyman said, I say that wherever Satan is hurled, there I also am hurled, or there I too am hurled. So, this is a pretty severe reproach, you know, that we're, you know, to call himself basically a son of Satan, you know, one who often lies, you know, if Satan is the father of lies, when we lie to ourselves, when we seek to hide things from God, or hide from this truth about ourselves, uh, wherever you know, he is hurled, even if he's cast out, and, and from one place, we will encounter him in another. That this kind of self-reproach is to, to have a kind of constancy uh, in our life. That simply because we've cast him out in one way doesn't mean that he's not going to manifest himself in all these other places in our life. Sort of like the image from the scripture, where the house is clean, the demon is cast out, the house is cleaned and put in order, and then seven other demons come and take over, and it's worse, the condition is first than the, worse than the first, uh, or than when it began. And so it can be true for us. You know, we have to be ever so cautious, you know, not to be so prideful that we think in casting him out, that we've cast him out fully. Number 40, Abba Poyman said, a man always needs humility and the fear of God, just as he needs air in order to breathe. So again, with this great simplicity, uh, the Father set before us the, the need for particular virtues. And humility should be like air for us, uh, just in the same way that uh, prayer is spoken about. That prayer is like breathing for us, or should become like breathing for us. And uh, that, you know, that there isn't a moment that we can live without it. And, uh, you know, it's a simple statement. And but uh, this is what I love about the fathers, despite the simplicity, it roots up 
you know, our capacity to rationalize, that there's never a moment that we can lie to ourselves, and which we are often willing to do. If it, if it gives us some personal gain, we will lie to ourselves and lie to others and to pretend that we can even hide things from God or lie to him if we are able to pursue something that satisfies some uh, baser desire that we might have or some self-focused desire. And, uh, and so, uh, like so many of the virtues that we've talked about, one, one of the things that we have to develop is constancy. Um, this is why we embrace a prayer role, even in our day-to-day -day life, to establish the habit of virtue, the habit of prayer, and similarly uh, with reproach, with humility, with repentance, and to foster the, this habit of mind, this habit of virtue, that it becomes the norm for us. How else is our conscience going to speak with us, speak to us with such clarity unless we've created this habit of mind? That, you know, if it becomes this habit of mind and virtue, then the moment that we tend towards something, uh, and even in the slightest way, you know, our conscience is going to rebuke us to say, no, 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 don't go down that path that, that because it's going to draw you away from that which is most precious. Number hold on for a second, number 41. The same Abba said, humbling yourself before God, reckoning that you are nothing, and setting aside your will, all these are tools of the soul. Uh, so, so different from the, the tools that I think that are emphasized for us in our day-to-day -day life, what we would cultivate or what we think is necessary for success or well-being or happiness. And uh, a lot of sort of internal walls have to break down for us to, be, uh, to believe, not only believe this, but to cultivate it. That these are the tools that we seek to have uh, at hand at every moment, because we know how important they are in the spiritual life. So this ability to humble ourselves, not to overestimate ourselves. In fact, before God, to see ourselves as nothing, to set aside our own will. And, you know, the self-made man and the self-made woman, you know, often can be the most willful of individuals. And so it's hard sometimes to distinguish with what we would see you know, the virtues uh, that are needed within this world, the strengths that are needed in this world, as opposed to the strengths of the kingdom. And they can often be quite different, if not altogether opposite. Number 42. A brother asked Abapoyman, to what should I attend when I'm sitting in my cell up to now, replied the elder, I am a man who has been submerged in mud up to his neck, carrying a heavy burden around my neck and crying out to God, have mercy on me. So, you know, it's this elder does not play the teacher or speak in elevated terms. Uh, when asked, you know, what, what should one do when sitting in one cell, you know, that he places before him uh, the experience of the spiritual life that in no way sort of elevates him in the eyes of the other. I've been sunk up to my neck in mud, and, uh, and I've been carrying this heavy burden that has led me to cry out constantly, have mercy on me. And you know, there's nothing more perfect that he could have said to this individual that shifts the focus off of him, certainly 
uh, very quickly to emphasize again the, the human condition and our, our need for God's mercy and grace. And again, you know, when we cry, when we cry out the Jesus prayer, when we have this on our lips constantly, you know, this is what we have in mind. We we're acknowledging who God is for us, but we're also acknowledging who we are before him. How it is that we stand before the light of his love and truth and goodness and compassion. And what is left for us is to cry out, have mercy on us. The same elder said, if a brother visits you and you see that you are deriving no benefit at all from his coming, look into your mind and find out what thought you had before the brother came to yourself. From this examination, you will understand what it was that made this visit unprofitable and that you were the cause of it. If you carry out this advice with humility, you will be blameless with regard to your neighbor, since you will blame yourself and you will bear the burden of your own faults. If a man sits piously in his cell, he will not sin, for God is ever before him. As I see it, a man acquires fear of God by remaining piously in his cell. So, you know, piously in one's cell, acknowledging the truths that have been articulated, we find ourselves standing before God in the light of his truth. This is where we see ourselves most clearly. In the silence of one's cell, one cannot project uh, one's faults and flaws onto another. One sees what the movements of the own heart. But when we have an, an encounter, as he says, with a brother here, and we are moved to frustration or anger, and it or it just turned out to be wholly unprofitable, you know, he's really compelling us to search more deeply. Now, what was going on? It almost sounds like a, a psychoanalyst. Now, what was what's, what was on your mind <laughs> before this individual came in? What were you thinking about, or what were you doing? that your response to his presence, whatever he might've done or said, but that your response uh, then allowed this to become something that drew you out of your peace and that peace of Christ, that you became focused upon uh, something about the other or blamed him for the, the improper, you know, it being unprofitable. And, you know, it's to be honest with you, it's pretty darn good advice. You know, I think often our minds can be in a place, uh, even when, you know how that, even with say something simple, when somebody comes in and they interrupt us in the midst of our labors, you know, even uh, in that moment, it, we can be driven to impatience and anger and, Part of it is that we are elevating that work and its meaning higher than what it deserves, than the, than the other, than the individual who's standing before us. And so we need to even examine how it is that we are working, where our mind is and where God is in what, what it is that we are doing at that moment. Uh, or, or we could have been having thoughts, you know, that were of a negative nature of some sort, or we were letting our mind wander. And so we lost that attentiveness uh, to respond to the approach of the other with love and charity and to receive what they say to us with uh, suspended judgment that allows us to receive it and to receive it charitably. And to go back to a previous paragraph, you know, not to disagree with it, you know, not to set ourselves in opposition with the other, even when we might not agree with what it is that they might say. And I think it was, maybe it was last week we heard him say, well, respond to a brother. Well, you know, th that's how you see it. You know, or you, or you see that that's how you see the truth of it, or you see the truth of it, that, you know, the emphasis isn't on correcting 
them. And uh, again, it's, it's telling us that love trumps, you know, uh, what our own judgment might lead us to do in a given moment, that immediately we can get our hackles up if someone says something off color to us, insult, insults us, interrupts us, and uh, we can get angry very quickly. Whereas if we're, we're living in the peace of Christ through this constancy of prayer, you know, our, our thoughts and our attention can turn to the other. And, I, you know, I once witnessed this in a person. We, there was a young woman where I used to live and work who was, you know, extremely obsessive compulsive, brilliant, had, you know, one might say this photographic memory, her mind was like an encyclopedia, but she would stand by listening to conversations and when something would come up, she would interject often out of some obscure thing that she read about a particular subject. And, but I saw someone, you know, engage her in that mo in a moment like that, you know, inserting herself into like a, a private conversation, even turn to her gently and, you know, you know, ask her to allow him to finish the thought or, you know, just sort of uh, didn't diminish her in that moment or humiliate her. You know, he, he knew her so well, he loved her, you know, so deeply that he could receive that without becoming agitated. And uh, she passed away suddenly uh, a few years ago. She was actually a student when I was a young priest. And it was interesting watching the other students that came through with her who knew her and knew sort of the affliction that she had, that how gently and charitably they were able to draw her into the group rather than to isolate her. And how difficult it was when that group moved on and graduated that they did not see her through the same eyes. Uh, but this is how we are to shape our own hearts or seek to shape our own hearts that we would be able to receive somebody as beloved, as someone who's dear to us. And even if they do something that seems unprofitable to us, you know, we, we would not respond to them with anger. And if we do, that we would search ourselves just like is counseled here to say, okay, why, why wasn't I able to respond to that individual here with charity and gentleness? Number 44. On another occasion, he said, the elders were once sitting at the table and Abba Alonius was standing up and serving them as they ate. The elders praised him, but he did not reply at all. One of the elders then said to him privately, why did you not respond to all the elders when they praised you? If I were to respond to them, said Abalonius, I would be accepting their praise. Now, again, you know, upon first reading this, this might strike us as ingratitude. You know, the inability to receive the kind remarks of others. But, uh, you know, for somebody who's engaged in this spiritual battle, they also realize that this can be very seductive. And they know the wiles of the evil one, that even something like serving a meal uh, and standing up and serving all the others, that even though he himself was an elder, and probably it's for this reason that he is being praised for this kind of servant service uh, to the others, that if he responds to this, he can be, you know, what he's doing simply out of love and fidelity and obedience could be diminished. And so even how we receive praise from others is something that we would want to look at through the, the lens of humility and uh, to show a kind of care there uh, of in how we receive it. 
number 45. In another instance, he said, the ground on which God commanded us to offer sacrifice is humility. So, you know, we, in a sense, are the altar of sacrifice and the sacrifice. You know, we offer uh, ourselves fully to God and uh, we what we offer him is humility, that this is the most precious thing that we could give, this acknowledgement of our need for his grace, that if he comes to us and pours himself out and embraces, you know, our sin, then the, the way that we show the greatest gratitude is to offer ourselves to him in humility. You know, this is the one sacrifice we can offer in return that reveals that we understand what it is that we've received. That our, our God humbled himself and took upon himself our flesh and our sin. Abbasissos, we who uh, said, he who knowingly possesses humility fulfills the whole of scripture. That's <laughs> so provocative, but it's telling us something about the virtue of humility itself. And it's telling us even what all of scripture leads up to and reveals to us that, you know, God becomes man. He, he humbles himself. Everything leads to the incarnation this downward mobility that reveals to us the, the love and the mercy and the compassion of our God. And so if we embrace humility, then we are fulfilling and we carry within ourselves the, the whole of scripture. And it's very much like we what we read about with the demons being cast out when the monk was slapped across the face and he doesn't say a word and he turns the other cheek and offers it to the, the young woman who was possessed by the demon and the demon shrieks, you know, oh, the violence of scripture fulfilled. And so again, you know, the fathers are telling us that this virtue you know, is the most extraordinary of them. And all the other virtues are contained within them. We might have no other virtues, but if we have humility, we have them all. But if we have all the other virtues without humility, we have, in reality, no virtue. And that's a pretty good thing to keep in mind in terms of really, where again, where our mind is from moment to moment. Number, any comments or questions before we move forward? Okay. Number 47. A brother once visited Abba Sissos on the mountain of Abba Anthony. While they were conversing, he asked the elder, Father, have you not by now attained to the stature of Abba Anthony? If I had a single one of Abba Anthony's thoughts, answered Abba Sissos. I would be entirely ablaze. She tells us something about both of these men's virtue. You know, certainly Abbasissos didn't uh, imagine himself to, to re reach the level of Anthony. Uh, but if he were to have a single thought of Abba Anthony, he would be entirely ablaze with the spirit. And so, you know, even though the father's right in these little sayings, I think what begins to take place is this beautiful portrait that is laid out before us of, of the gospels of Christ himself, of what life in Christ looks like. And even this last little phrase that, you know, it harkens back to the one that we've often talked about, why not become all fire? And this is what we are called to, to be consumed with the love of God, 
and in order that we might be perfectly purified, but also come to know this perfect intimacy, this union and communion with our God. This is what we are, are called to. And if we are thinking about the meaning and relevance of our faith, you know, if we lose sight of this end, you know, deification, then we don't understand the gospel ourselves, nor are we communicating it fully to others. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, into, I think, what was it called? Integrate Silence about the Carthusians. Uh, it's a very long movie and filmed in an interesting way. But one of the sayings that is quoted is that uh, uh, for love of you, uh, I became human. You would do me wrong if you were not to become God. And, you know, I, I think the way that we often bear witness to the faith or talk about the faith, certainly the way that we live our faith falls short of this, but the way that we talk about faith, I think does not communicate the wonder of it and create within the human heart a desire now, this is why the pews are empty. You know, it's, you know, if we reduce Christianity to an ideology, to a set of moral teachings, to a philosophy, it's not going to speak to the human heart, especially in light of all the things that vie for the heart's attention in the world. But if we not only speak of, but bear witness to, make present this love, that is an all-consuming fire. This is what is going to ignite that same desire within the hearts of others. And so, you know, so often I think, gee, our, our whole idea of catechesis, of evangelization, of seminary for, formation needs to be gutted and we need to start over. And, uh, I had this little talk with the students over the weekend, and I shared with them a quote from a local businessman who's a Latin Rite Catholic, very faithful, but he did a favor for me here at the rectory. And after it was done, you know, we exchanged, you know, uh, some pleasantries online and by text and and he wrote to me uh, when, you know, he understood that I became Eastern Rite. And he said, you know, the Eastern churches have this quality about them, poor, humbler, more agile, teachable. And, uh, and he said, especially in an age that has moved from the age of Christendom, a, a church that has moved from the age of Christendom, and he didn't say to uh, a post-Christian age, he said has moved from the age of Christendom to an apostolic age. And I've, I've reread this text that he sent me hundreds of times this past year, uh, but it was that little phrase that sort of caught my attention this last time, but he's, because he's saying, you know, what, what could, could emerge with, within the Eastern Rites, especially with the, the, the liturgy as it is and the, the writings of the Fathers, is that this return to the apostolic age, you know, the, the presentation of the gospel in an unvarnished fashion, you know, or a way that has not been distorted or watered down. Uh, that, you know, arises out of this experience of the living God and, uh, th and that our knowledge of Christ is an experiential knowledge. And whether or not that's what he meant in saying it, I think he was exactly on the, on the mark. Father Marty writes, listening to this talk of humility, I wonder, I can at times act humbly on the outside but I don't know what humility feels like. I'm not sure how one acquires humility on the inside or lives consistently this way. 
is becoming humble, becoming like God. The only thought that comes to me is to be still and stare at God until he himself ignites or consumes me. I don't think I know how to be humble. I, I think you're right there. Uh, you know, when it comes to humility, uh, I think we are made humble. And, you know, either by the light that God gives us or by gazing at God, as you describe it here, in stillness and allowing him to speak that word of truth in all of its fullness to our heart that humbles us or that he illuminates the heart that we see also the poverty of our sin and uh, know our need for him. And so I think the experience of it is not necessarily a pleasant one uh, because it does involve a kind of dying to self and a dying to sin and self-will and living for God. And so to keep one's mind and heart fixed upon him and to, to have the love of God be above everything, uh, not just you know the greatest among a whole list of things we love, but not on the list. You know, the, 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 the list doesn't count when it comes to God. It's just God. And when we live like that, then I think that's when one becomes humble or becomes like God because one is living in him and for him alone. And you know, a good example of that, I think, would be Mary sitting at his feet, listening to him. You know, that Martha loved and wanted to serve and yet there was something there that clouded her vision to the fact that of who, who she had before her that her own act, action so there was still a self-consciousness there even in her virtue and to the point that it made her mad you know tell my lazy sister to get up and to help me so ordering the lord around tell her she says to him, tell her to get up and help me. So, you know, rather than simply receiving, you know, in the way that Christ himself said, if you acknowledge to the woman as well, you know, if you knew who it was who's talking to you, he would give you living water. And similarly, Martha, you know, if she understood who it was before her, you know, that he would nourish her, he's the bread of life, would nourish, she would never hunger, she would never thirst. And often, you know, even in our virtue, we can lose, lose sight of that, where our focus still remains upon ourselves and upon God, and instead of God. So ultimately, you know, the self-reproach, I think, is to free us from that which, uh, you know, keeps us moored to the self. You know, or the you know that focus that keeps us more to the self. That once we that once reproach does that, then there is a kind of freedom that comes to us that one can be focused fully upon God. Yeah, we have this tendency, you know, as Proverbs says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a sinner to a sin. That you know, we have this tendency to run right back towards it, even though it is not nourishing for us. So a lot here to contemplate. And as I mentioned, this is the longest hypothesis in this volume. And so you're about halfway through it, I think. And when we, it's 8.30, and so we'll stop there for this week. Uh, but also week, next week, I'll be away on retreat uh, throughout the week. So we will have the Ladder of Divine Ascent on Wednesday, but next week the, we won't have the groups, just so you know. So make a little note of it, okay? So when we close, as always, with you, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.